0: Keeping me company until seven o'clock tonight on the show. My panel, we've got Lucy Harris, who's the former Conservative MEP, James Woodhausen, the visiting professor at London South Bank University, and Johnny Ball, special projects writer at the New Statesman and a newbie on this panel. Good evening. I'll try and go very easy with you, Johnny. We like to have people back a second time. Uh, anyway, you know the drill on this show, don't you? It's not just about us three. No, it is not. It is about you as well at home. What's on your mind tonight? What are you thinking about the stories that we're going to be discussing? Anything that I might have missed? Anything at all, quite frankly? John was my first email that I got today. Uh, He said, Michelle, you look lovely tonight, but question. Do you sell Avon part-time? <laughs> He's asking about my jacket. Apparently, I look like an Avon uh, lady. Can you say lady these days? Avon person? What is the correct terminology? I don't know. But anyway, no, John, use my first email of the night. And to cut, cut it bluntly, no, I don't sell Avon in my spare time. But never say never. Who knows what the future holds, here? Uh, anyway, wherever you're watching us tonight, you're very welcome. It might be on your TV. You might be listening to us on the radio. it might be on YouTube. I don't know where you are, the app, the podcast, where Wherever you are, you are very, very welcome to Jubes & Kerr. Now, today is the final day of campaigning ahead of tomorrow's local elections. More than 4,350 seats are up for grabs in England on over 140 councils. There's also going to be elections to Scotland's 32 councils and the 22 in Wales. Voters will be electing 90 members of the Northern Ireland Assembly as well. The council vote has being seen as a referendum on Boris Johnson's government and polls suggest the Conservatives could suffer major losses. Uh, I'm always fascinated, though, by about the turnout on these things. I wonder, uh, will you be getting out there and voting? Do you care about the local elections? Are you excited about the local elections because you see them as an opportunity to sock it to the party that you don't like? I'm running a a poll, by the way, on Twitter, if that's your thing, asking whether or not you will be going out. Do let me know uh, on Twitter's GB News. But, uh, Lucy, I'll start with you tonight. What do you reckon? Uh, about tomorrow well
1: i've already been out campaigning i will of course be voting conservative Um, but you know what i think people are a bit politicked out if that's a word it is a word it is a word i'm going to make it a word even if it's not (laughs) um but you know like after partygate after all these you know issues like brexit and covid having boris on the screen every single day i think people just want to relax um so i would be surprised at a very significant turnout tomorrow But I do feel that people are really concerned with the cost of living. And if there is an opportunity to make sure that their bills are lower, um, like they will be in one of my areas that I will be voting in, um, then I think they will turn out to make sure that happens, to make sure it doesn't hurt them in the pocket.
0: But what does that mean? You think that the people are going to come out if there's an opportunity to get their cost of living lower? What Are you saying that people, in your view, will see it as an opportunity to yes. vote on a national issue? or no, as like to locally, so um, how much you pay for council tax. Oh, in
1: my right. area, it's a, a lower price than uh, obviously the opposition. So I think people seeing that opportunity will come out and vote for it.
0: Yeah, the reason I question that is because I found it quite interesting. I've seen some of Labour's national campaigning has mm. been all about, you know, to lo- local elections, make sure you go out and because if we get into power, we will, for example, uh, do windfall taxes. We'd look at the national insurance cuts, And I think, what are you even talking about? Your local council is not responsible for national insurance and all the rest of it. But nonetheless, I get it. I get the point. It's all about sending a message if that's your kind of thing. Johnny, your thoughts?
2: I think, uh, to be fair, on Labour's side of the campaign, they are campaigning on that huge national issue, which is cost of living. Uh, To say that it's not all just down to local councils is absolutely correct, but the 500 million household support fund that the the Conservative government are providing to help people who are really vulnerable in terms of the rising energy bills and cost of living crisis, that will be administered through local authorities, and their proposal is to have this windfall tax on the super profits of companies like BP and Shell, we can discuss that later. Yes, so in- we will. perhaps increase that household support fund by by, by several orders of magnitude.
0: But, so, do you think that's sensible? Then, this whole kind of. Um, a national campaign on a national issue to encourage turnout on a local level, because I've got to say, I find that quite bizarre. I would think, why would you sit there and think to yourself, yeah, I'm going to vote for this party or that party, whoever it is, is kind of irrelevant, but on this national issue, because I would think that actually it's a little bit of a missed opportunity, because you might be sending a message and sucking it to the opposition, while simultaneously shooting yourself in the foot when it comes to your bin collections.
2: Absolutely. Well, turnout in local elections uh, can always be influenced by very sort of um, intense local issues that are very sort of locally focused in those communities. But I think this time round, Obviously, turnout's not going to be on the level of a general election, but there is a real sense of multiple crises building. Obviously, this, this squeeze in living standards is the worst we've seen for a very long time, several decades.
0: And it's about to get a lot worse.
2: And it's about to get a lot worse, and there'll be a lot of people out there who really want to give a bloody nose to the government nationally, or the, or the governing party, I
3: should say.
0: James and your thoughts?
3: Well, I think as soon as I uh, hear that turnout might be lower, I'm forced to think that local authorities and local democracy are in a terrible state, Michelle, and that's why people are not very motivated uh, to vote, perhaps. We'll have to see. Um, I, I happened to stand as a candidate uh, for MP at the last elections, and I learned a well, lot nas- about-
0: National elections, yeah? Yeah,
3: and I learned a lot about a locality that I cannot name. And how it worked. But the thing that came through is that democracy at a local level is sick, very weak. Uh, The elected individuals are corrupt. They have a nice little elitist club of their own, along with the healthcare trusts, the local education people. Uh, And they play a particularly obstructive role uh, in introducing local traffic networks and trying to mess up uh, transport. So I think the real issue with the local elections is not so much voting in them, but standing in them and standing up against this kind of cozy club that exists at every local authority level. Some are a little bit more lily white than others, but I certainly experienced, I think I'm allowed to say, in the greater London area, a quite shocking sense of complacency uh, and not being part of the in crowd And uh, it's true they've been impoverished by successive Conservative governments. At the same time, their competence, their priorities, their value for money, uh, and their conduct on the streets of uh, the capital in particular, I think is completely reprehensible.
0: Um, Lucy, I've run for election as well um, in a general election. And I have to say, I did not enjoy the experience at all Particularly not the campaigning side of it. It was awful. It was so territorial. It was so abusive. Exactly. I just really, I, I didn't enjoy it at all. And I wonder your thoughts in terms of the temperament at the moment, yeah. kind of how it is. Because certainly my experience was it was such a toxic. Yeah, I, exactly. I really didn't enjoy campaigning. Put yeah, out there.
1: I mean, those were definitely back during the Brexit days, and certainly emotions were running high because it was such a fundamental debate that everybody who understood democracy um, had a stake in. Um, So obviously there was quite a heightened and and, uh, it got to boiling point um, with the Brexit vote. But I think now people have started to die down slightly in terms of their ferocity when it comes to these elections. Um, At the door, yes, I do have a bit of a pushback, um, especially when you say you're from, you know, the local Conservatives, particularly in London. Um, but, you know, that's not to say there isn't room for manoeuvring. I think people are starting to realise that there is a debate to be had when their bills are being affected and the Tories have a solution locally. Therefore, a conversation can happen. But you're absolutely right. I think there's a morals and an economic argument. When it comes to morals people are in, or, or values, people get heightened with their, with their emotional responses to politics. When it comes to economics, I think there's a chance to have a conversation. I
3: think you're going to find a lot of emotions tied up this autumn at the local and national. Are you getting a big response from Partygate on the doorstep?
2: Um,
1: Not really. I think, you know, I think people are fed up with what they see as, you know, Labour and Tories constantly having Mm -hmm. a fight and they don't want to have it. They want to talk about issues. They want to talk about things that matter to them. Because if you think about it, a lot of the Partygate stuff is artificially pushed. It's pushed by people in the media that want to, that have an agenda. Ordinary people want their personal opinions and their things that they care about pushed to the forefront of the agenda. And people might say, "Ah, Lucy, you're just trying to get rid of something that's highly toxic for the Conservative Party. I'm not, people want to set the agenda. They don't want the media to set the
2: agenda. I certainly think the bread and butter issues are going to matter more to how people vote in the ballot box. But I think, I mean, let me just echo what you were saying, James, about some of the some of the issues around local democracy and how it's been successively sort of um, emasculated by sort of decades of, 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 of governments of every stripe, actually, in terms of the powers they have, but also the money they have, and also I, the people they have, and the people, of course. I mean, my local authority, you know, it's a sort of um, it's, it's it's a one-party state effectively, and that affects the that affects the the governance of it um, and has really affected the, the governance of it of do you, mean, do
0: you mean just at a local level it's a one?
2: Mm. At a local level it's Derek, effectively, it, it has a very tiny opposition. Is it like
0: what Derek, Derek's just written in and said, I'm in Wigan Michelle um, and you could put a turnip up for election, his words not <laughs> mine, you could put a turnip up for election with a red rosette and it would get in.
2: Well I'm, I'm in a, cin- a similar place not far from Wigan um, where yeah, absolutely anyone in a red rosette is effectively going to win um, and there are all sorts of problems on the local level. But one of the things... Let me
0: ask you why you think that is. Why? What is that about? What do you think? Irrespective of which party it is, it's kind of irrelevant, but that kind of deeply kind of uh, ingrained, you can almost guess the outcome before it even happens. Where do you think that comes from?
2: Well, I think for my specific place, I mean, it's different for, for, for every place, but my specific place has quite a long memory of how it suffered under the last sort of 40 years of conservative government, particularly in the 1980s. There was a particularly, particularly high unemployment rate on Mersey side. Industry was leaving at a rate of knots. Um, there was a whole sort of move towards um, containerisation on the docks. The start in the 60s so really past accelerated. past resentment. Past resentment, and that has really sort of gathered and built up and continued to present day. Because
0: I found this quite fascinating, the kind of tribal division. And it is steeped so often in history. It's often passed down uh, through different generations. You know, you don't vote for this party because back in the day, they did X, Y and Z to your granddad or whatever it was. And then I think, isn't there a point though where you kind of go, you know what? The past is in the past. We've had this particular council, whoever it is, for X amount of time. My city, my town, whatever it is, is not in great shape right now. So actually, I do want to give it a chance. And I just think that is the kind of tough thing that the party, whichever party it is that's in the, you know, the minority, has got to try and cut through. It's not just about policies. It's not just about. It's almost historical reputational resentment. that...
3: Well, I think there is a lot of that. And, I mean, the rise of identity politics at a national level can only confirm some Liverpudlians, not you, Johnny, (laughs) in the view that, you know, their borough or whatever it is, is more important than anybody else's. You know, and I I once spoke in Manchester, and the main opposition I got from the left was that I was from London. You know, so uh, I think the, the, the scope for parochialism, if you can have such a, oxymoron, uh, Michelle, is enormous at local government level. And the scope for popular cynicism is enormous. It's all from a different era. The funding, the amounts of the funding, the organization, the competence, the skills, uh, even the pay. And some some councillors or some officials are way overpaid. The whole thing's a gravy train. Nowadays, yeah. and like the state, they were uh, now one shouldn't generalise. And I got ticked off on this programme for imagining that civil servants existed at a local level, which I think they actually do. Myself, a Labour person told me off, but uh, nevertheless, local or national. Civil servants have a case to answer on the working from home thing. I'm no fan of uh, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, like perhaps Lucy is. I more remember and have distaste (laughs) for his dad, except for his defence of the Rolling Stones. But, uh, you know, the the way in which um, people at local level are continually betrayed and can see the physical environment deteriorating in front of their eyes, while we get the same old well, lack of... austerity hasn't helped on that front. I mean, of course, I mean, my you local can't blame it all on the Tories. Sure, absolutely.
2: I, I, I recognise some of what you're saying, but my local authority has lost two-thirds of its central oh, government budget, that. which is, of I course, know, a huge I know, but austerity factor. came
0: about for a reason, didn't it? Because I often find... I always find it interesting when people start a story, at Chapter 2, so they'll start saying, austerity did all this and all that and all the other, which I don't dispute, by the way. But then what about Chapter 1, which was all about why austerity was needed in the first place, I always find it quite interesting that people will criticise austerity without criticising the activity that led to the need for you know the austerity that we've seen. So many of you, by the way, are getting in touch, and I am fascinated. My question to you tonight is, are you going to vote tomorrow at the local elections? Wherever you are, by the way, if you can vote, uh, let me know whether or not you're going to. We've got a poll running on our Twitter account, if that's your thing. Uh, You can tell me on there, you can get in touch with me on email. I've got to make a confession, and I'm sure I'll get into trouble for this confession, but I don't think I'm going to bother, you know. I don't think I'm going to. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure that, no, I'm sure that all the uh, suffragettes and all the rest of it will be turning in their graves because they fought long and hard for me to get my vote. But I just, oh, I don't know. Before we go
3: any further on that, if I may, Michelle, I've often had the argument in my family, uh, the older members, you know, that it's irresponsible not to vote. And I think it's a very corrupt argument, often advanced by the sillier people in the Labour and Liberal Democrat parties, because, you know, why should I vote for a bunch of idiots with whom I completely disagree and who I see as an obstacle to free-flowing transport, litter collection, value for money and all the other things? It's not just the council taxes you know, that's too narrow a vision of local authorities and local democracy. I want to know what they are doing about housing. And if they're building housing, I want to know that they're building parking for the housing. Yes, parking, not cycling. Yeah,
0: all the infrastructure that goes around it. It's a very good point. Neil says, no, Michelle, I will not be going out and voting tomorrow. Along with many others I know, he says, in Manchester. Lindsay says, I'll go to the station, but I'll spoil my paper. I've got to say, that sentiment is coming through. Steve says, my wife and I have voted every time over the last 45 years and for the first time ever. As a result of the attitude and lies both in government and local government, we have spoiled our postal ballot papers. I have to say that whole spoilt kind of uh, ballot, um, ballot is coming through quite valid. Because a car wash. Big, big
3: thing in France, the yeah. spoiling of the ballot papers.
0: Uh, well, actually, yeah. I-, I mention this often. The spoiling of the ballot papers I find absolutely hilarious because if you've ran, you'll know you have kind of a a process by which you all have to gather round and you look at the papers that have been uh, classed as spoiled. Oh, so you yeah. all have to agree. The way it works is all the candidates have to come together and agree that this is definitely a spoiled ballot paper. So make sure that actually I might think it was a vote for me or he might think it's a vote for them or whatever. You get a consensus and off it goes. So some of the things that you see, ladies <laughs> person, and gentlemen, spoiled ballot papers. I will not, because it's tea time, uh, I won't go into graphic details, but, you know... Tractors. I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> papers, I can tell you that. Elizabeth says, well, Michelle, it's not just about local elections tomorrow, it's my birthday. The big 5-0 as well. Well, Elizabeth, happy birthday. I was going to ask what you'll be doing tomorrow, but I know the answer. It is glued to Jubes and cur on your birthday <laughs> evening, I am sure. So <laughs> I wish you a happy birthday tomorrow. I'll make notes myself. You'll be able to watch it then. <laughs> Hello there, I'm Michelle Jubri keeping me company tonight. Just a to reminder as to who my panel is. We've got Lucy Harris, who's the former Conservative MEP, James Woodhausen, who's the visiting professor at London South Bank University, and Johnny Ball, who's a special project writer at the News Statesman. Now, you might have seen some videos about this, but there was a disturbing incident in Los Angeles last night when the comedian Dave Chappelle was attacked during a performance. Uh, he was basically tackled by an audience member who basically popped out of the stage. Uh, Footage of the attack, as I said, is circulating. I'm showing it to you as we speak, if you're watching. It was basically uh, a guy doing an elaborate kind of, I don't know what you'd call it. It's like a running headbutt meets rugby tackle type thing. I'm also showing to you a video uh, of the guy that's accused of the assault getting shoved into an ambulance uh, afterwards. So, I mean, when you see the state of him, if you were sitting there contemplating getting on stage and attacking someone, you might think twice. Uh, when you see how he came off. Anyway, uh, the Los Angeles police said that the suspect had a replica handgun uh, and, as I said, he's been arrested on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon. Now, I've got to say, we don't actually know uh, the reason for this. When it all kind of occurred, Chappelle himself joked that the perpetrator was, I quote, a trans man. That was in reference, of course. You might have seen some of the controversy all around the Netflix stuff. He was making some jokes. Uh, Dave Chappelle, he got a lot of criticism to be, uh, for being transphobic, et cetera. Now, when I saw this, it got me thinking about what it must be like to be a comedian. Because in this day and age, you know, half the time, you can't say anything, can you, Uh, for fear of offending people? But if your job is to kind of make people laugh, push the boundaries, how must it be? So before the break, I told you I was going to discuss this uh, with someone that was funny. Unfortunately, uh, he got held up in traffic. So joining me instead, Is Andrew Doyle. Hello. Hello. I'm (laughs) teasing. I said it was someone funny, it was you. No, that's better, because if you say I'm funny, then there's an expectation for me to be funny. You are a comedian extraordinaire, aren't you? Uh, And also, you are... (laughs) You, come on, just you, just soak it up. I accept all, all right, I'll the accept praise. It, yeah. yeah, you are. No,
4: I need it. My ego needs speeding.
0: Yeah, you're a comedian. All that. I must hate. I would hate to be introduced as a comedian because I would feel pressure well,
4: that's to exactly be immediately
0: right. hilarious.
4: Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: do you want to tell us a quick joke, or shall we just get into the story? Let's get into the story. Let's So just tell <laughs> me then. What do you make to all this Chappelle thing? What is life like as a comedian right now, Dan? Yeah. Are you afraid of offending, or what?
4: It, it's really interesting because I mean, I should say the. The man who jumped on the stage, the LAPD, did confirm that he had a fake gun which unleashed a real knife. So there was a sense of real danger potentially about, about it. Um, but it does remind you that comedians are, well, we are vulnerable when we're on stage. Mm. This sort of thing rarely happens. I mean, it's happened to Jim Jefferies. He was punched at the Comedy Store. That clip went viral. Um, there was um, Jerry Sadowitz was uh, punched on stage in Canada when he did a joke about um, uh, or suggestive that the audience might enjoy intimacy with moose, a moose or something like, something like that. Anyway, It was unpleasant. Uh, he got punched. Uh, I've had beer thrown in my face at the Edinburgh Fringe. Beer? Um, yeah, someone got upset with me and threw a pint of beer in my face. That show was being recorded, and that went slightly viral, and that sold out the rest of my run. So it can be quite useful, oh, nice. uh, this kind of thing. But it's weird, because it reminds you that when you're on stage, you know, if someone wants to attack, they, they can. But the thing about a comedian is we're meant to have immunity. You know, if you go back to like King Lear and the fool in King Lear, he can say whatever he wants to the king. He's not going to get executed for it Mm. because the fool is always the figure who says exactly what they think. They speak truth to power, you know. And they, they shouldn't be vulnerable to attack as a result of it. It's something that we, it's, it's, it, I think it's really uncivilized to do that. A lot of people connecting this with Will Smith, of course.
0: Yeah, they, uh, but when you're writing as a comedian, like when you're planning your act and all the rest of it, do you uh, factor in now, you know, oh, I better not say that or I better not say that? How does it work?
4: I don't, um, but a lot of comedians do. I, I think um, I'm not a naturally offensive or controversial comedian, so that's, so it's quite easy for me. But I think if you are a, uh, a naturally controversial person, Uh, In the current climate, a lot of those people will be self-censoring because they're concerned about getting on TV, getting on panel shows, all that kind of thing. And there is a sense in which if someone complains about being offended, uh, that can really scupper your career. If you take Mary Burke, the Irish comedian, recently had a gig cancelled in Brighton, um, and she came on my show to talk about it. And the reason it was cancelled is because some activists contacted the venue and said some of her jokes make us feel unsafe. And then they cancelled it. She lost the money. So you do, you know... It's it's tricky at the moment. I'm
0: going to give you a little bit of an overshare into my childhood, a bit of an insight, because. You know, when I was growing up, one of the people that you used to watch and laugh at, uh, don't judge me, was Roy Chubby brown I mean, yes, okay, it does say a lot about me. Uh, He was hilarious back in the day. And now, you know, I remember he was trying to do a theatre show somewhere. As soon as people got wind of it locally, they did a campaign to stop him uh, being able to perform. And the venue actually said, no, we're not going to run that. So, I mean, he's completely uh, been affected by stuff like this. And I guess... Humour perhaps just moves on what is okay and what's not okay, but James, what's your thoughts on all this? James Woodhouse, by the way, is sitting in my chair. Don't get too comfortable. (laughs) I'm swapping back in just a moment young man. Uh, Your thoughts on all of this kind of where are the uh, fence lines? You know, what can you say? What can't you say?
3: Well, I think if you look at the historical scheme of things, Michelle, our woke friends today despite the oppression of gays and uh, of transsexuals in decades, have experienced relatively little violence compared with, say, the Holocaust or something like that. Uh, That, along with the decline of Western thought, is one more reason why perhaps they equate words with violence, because they're not very familiar with violence. Violence for them is words now. uh, of course, if you criticize them too much, you yourself will be canceled or subjected to the, the violence that you're talking about. So we live in a world where, courtesy Hollywood especially, but even bits of the comedy circuit, where feelings not rationality will erupt more and more. And the real victims are not the, uh, the Dave Chappelle's so much as uh, debate, comedy, mm. free speech democracy, just a few minor matters like that. So it's a really, really worrying trend and it goes much wider than comedy, as I'm sure Andrew would accept.
0: Yeah, and Lucy, I kind of worry that this is, you know, we're just at almost like the tip of the iceberg because coming through, we seem to have uh, a new generation who, to me anyway, they all it's almost like, you know, they seem, uh, always offended. You know, everywhere, all of these institutions are catering for kind of triggers. You've got safe spaces here, you've got warnings there, you've got censorship deplatforming. So I worry about what we're going to do to the next generation then, because you're wrapping them up in bubble wrap in case they hear a word that might upset them. Yeah, I think
1: people are taking things way too personally these days. Um, And I think it's due to a lack of goodwill, um, not most towards um, not most towards the comedians, but in general, when we debate things there's a lack of goodwill. It's a lack of seeing your sparring partner as merely in that moment you're debating ideas, whereas they see it as, a, as almost like a fight to the death. Who can get the platform and who can dominate that platform and establish their way of thinking as the, the modus operandi going forward. But I am I, more worried about this concept of uh, disposable talent. Um, this this way of thinking about comedians or singers or people in TV. If they do one thing wrong, then they're mm. completely disposed of. And then we lose generations of amazing talent because of one joke. And that's what I'm I'm really concerned about.
0: And by the way, Johnny, these kind of jokes that Lucy's alluding to, often what it can be is something that someone once upon a time said ten years ago on a Twitter account that's mm. then being kind of excavated from the past, shoved onto a platform, highlighted, taken out of context, and uh, used to bash the person over the head. Look at what an awful person this uh, person is, because when he was 15, this is what he said. And people go along with it. It's absurd.
2: Well, I do think the whole thing is massively amplified by Twitter. I actually think it's a minority of people who want to get rid of all kind of edgy comedy or any kind of any kind of comedy with any kind of, any kind of perceived offence. I think it's a small minority of people who think that, that those things should be banned. But that tiny minority is just given a huge, huge platform um, on social media. And actually, their influence is, is bigger than their numbers. But if you look at actual, actually Dave Chappelle's uh, act, if you actually watch his Netflix special, which caused all that controversy last year, his actual whole position on the whole issue, the, the transgender issue, yeah, he has little tics and stuff, but it's actually a lot more nuanced than the tiny little out of context quotes mm, that were used and sort of blown up around social media as if he was sort of advocating violence. And that's, that's literally not what the set's about. That's not his routine at all. Um, but one good thing for him, I think he's going to get some more good material out of this, this this attack. He already he already came back on stage and made a joke
3: about it already. So, yeah, he did.
0: Yeah. James, did you want to
3: come in? Well, nuance is not the strong point of people who you know throw punches and uh, and, and so on. But again, <laughs> if I may take the historical perspective, you, may. Um, you look at Lenny Bruce, you look at Mel Brooks, who said that you know comedy is puncturing politically correct. Balloons. I'm trying to find it on the internet where he said that, but that's how he defined comedy. Bit narrow. I can run with it. So if you look at the greats in comedy, you know the offensive wasn't wasn't in it. You know, and you look at um, Warren Mitchell until death us do part. You know, you can't publish these kinds of people nowadays. What so I, censorious like you, is the a- atmosphere. What
0: I like about you is your sophistication. You're quoting <laughs> all of these. Uh, very interesting comedians, and I'm sat there referencing Roy Chubby Brown.
1: Uh, <laughs> show. I do make of that what you will. Huh? We need a joke? We can't finish
0: this off Yes, a that's joke. a very good yes. point. I Come introduced on, you as a very funny man, Andrew, so I was just about to say finish this off with a joke. but um...
4: Well, the, pro- the problem is that jokes only work in context in a comedy club when everyone's a bit drunk oh, and cigarettes. Oh, go on. You know, don't be <laughs> <acknowledge>. modest. Just <laughs> give us a little one. You're not drunk. Andrew, <laughs> I can
1: give you my favourite one right that's, now. Let's hear yours. OK, so... Um, I could tell you a vegan joke, but I promise it won't be cheesy. Ah, there you go. ah and I'm
0: cancelled. <laughs> Michelle's not I'm happy with that.
4: I told you context is everything. That would have killed at the Comedy Store.
0: Well, no, I'm oh, just offended yeah, <laughs> because I'm a vegan. <laughs> I'm not really. I'm not really. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes and Co with me, Michelle Dubry. Quick reminder as to who's keeping me company tonight. Lucy Harris, who's a former Conservative MEP. James Woodhausen, who's the visiting professor at London Southbank University, and Johnny Ball, who's the special projects writer at The New Statesman. I that sounds quite exciting. Do you get lots of interesting new special projects? I
2: do. <laughs> it's always different.
0: Oh, you can tell me about some of them, some of the most interesting ones in the next break. Uh, but for now, the next story, high oil and gas prices. I mean, we all know about this by now, don't we? They're going one way, and that is up, isn't it, unfortunately? Bad news for us consumers. But less bad news for the big energy firms. All of this, of course, has led for many calls for companies such as BP and Shell to pay what has been called a windfall tax. Uh, Many supporters of this plan, by the way, say that the government should demand (coughs) a one-off payment from these big firms because they've benefited from a situation that essentially they're not responsible for. Uh, James Woodhouse, young man, uh, you've written an article about this, haven't you? About this very topic. I mean, it's on the front pages again today, this whole windfall tax. I almost feel it's a little bit oversimplified because um, I liked your sentence. I read your article, you will be pleased to know. Um, (laughs) You said, uh, a windfall tax that takes from the greedy and gives to the needy looks moral. And I actually like that sentence. I mean, I did read the entire thing. That was the sentence that I pulled out as the most interesting to me because I think it encapsulates much of what this is all about because it's almost become a kind of to me, like a very simplistic, vote-winning, look at us, we're gonna take all this money from these nasty corporations, uh, vote for me on that basis. But I don't actually think it's as simple as that. Am I wrong?
3: No, it it isn't at all as simple as that. Um, Not trying to make it difficult, but uh, it's Band-Aid. It's gesture politics. Now, I know what I'm talking about here because unlike the other panellists, I've been a hundred meters beneath the North Sea, down the leg. Oh, do a,
0: uh, how do you know year? what they're doing there? weekend? know these I are do. special projects, right? One of the projects. <laughs> yeah.
3: yeah, yeah. So if you holiday in the North Sea, a hundred meters beneath it, then good luck to you, because I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it to anybody. And, and what that brings out is that energy prices are not just uh, a matter of avarice on the part of uh, Shell or BP. I nearly got sued by Shell for what I wrote. It's not just a question of taxing and spending. It's not just a question of supply and demand. It's how innovative and how recent is the investment that they are making to lower prices, take advantage of technological uh, moves forward, and generally supply reliably affordable energy. That hasn't been the case for the past 20 years. If the situation is so bad, we can't rectify it very fast. All we can know is that uh, the popular solutions with Labour and other people for lots of home insulation, if you look at the Obama administration, they managed to insulate a million homes in three and a half years. So if you do the maths on Britain's 25 or more million households, it's going to take us about a century to uh, to follow that route. So we must concentrate on energy supply. That's really important. And I think the other thing, uh, 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 Michelle, is that ironically, Greens have helped create the energy inflation and the profits bonanza that we see now. And by Greens, I also especially mean the government because by stigmatizing fossil fuels, they have made them appear to be luxuries. They've allowed wholesalers, retailers and the original drillers to have a frothy market for uh, something that is seen as not the future, should be kept in the ground, you know, can't go on like this. And that, you know, the, the, the green dogma has ironically led to this situation where BP and Shell uh, are really coining it. So uh, what we need is a proper public discussion on all the sources that f- as fast as possible can deliver us lower energy prices. And that is a discussion on technology, research and development, innovation, and it's not one about, you know, uh, oh, let's tax them for 1.6 billion. No, let's make it 1.8 billion. I deserve more votes. That's so glib, so superficial, so unfair to the people who really are suffering from fuel poverty, and it's going to get a lot worse. Johnny? Um-
2: I think the problem is with that, James. I'm going I'm to signal my virtue now and uh, come out in favour of a windfall tax. I, I didn't say that. I agree with I agree with elements of what you're saying. The problem is that people are suffering. So you think
0: BP should get a windfall tax? Well,
2: BP have doubled their profits in their quarterly earnings that they've announced. They've doubled their profits, and because they're see, I, would dispu-
0: I would dispute that because actually they wrote down a huge loss. For their basically their I'll simplify it their shares in, uh, in Russia in Rosneft. Mm. So actually, when you look at it on paper, essentially they didn't.
2: Well, their chief executive would disagree because he's described his energy his industry, the energy industry, as a cash machine. He did, and the underlying profit has doubled, and it's been calculated independently that a ten percent levy on the extra money. This isn't just profits overall, but the extra money would give over a billion pounds, which would be enough to triple the household support funds, which is going to people who need help right now. I agree with James. We need to do research and development on how to to, to come up with a better, more consistent energy supply. Think about nuclear. Think about renewables. thinking about a good energy mix and energy self-sufficiency, but we can't do that tomorrow. We need to help people
3: tonight who are really suffering. So what about, so what about business and services and industry? You see, the, your windfall tax is directed at households, or at least it is in Ed Miliband's conception. But, this you know, is a windfall tax on profits. Yeah, no, I know, I know, but the cash would go to households. It's all very well, sounds nice. You know, just like uh, furlough and all the other wonderful stroking schemes we've had in the past few mm. years. But the fact is that industry and services are going to be faced with higher energy costs. They're going to pass those costs on to households. So it's an entirely, you know, band-aid measure. And it doesn't address... You know, the, 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 the real thing is, which was we need a dynamized public debate with real knowledge uh, about the science and the technology that can deliver us solutions quick.
0: And let me ask you, before I bring um, Lucy in, let me just just test your theory a little bit, because as I said, on paper, I would actually dispute that quarterly they made a profit, because if you actually offset uh, the the write-down for this Russian thing, to me, I don't see a profit, I don't see the profit that people are suggesting there, so I would be confused about what profit you're actually going to tax in the first place. But notwithstanding that, if you're saying, because these markets are cyclical, right? You have um, gains, you have losses, and around and around we go. So if you're saying let's tax this profit, if you think there's a profit, you know, back in, I think it was 2020, they actually made a loss. So what would you do then?
3: And which operations would well, the you tax? Nature,
2: the nature of a windfall tax is, it, is that it's one-off. And, and they've and made no, super the, the profits, concept, they've made super profits this time, so there's a one-off tax to reflect that because people are really suffering in, in the cost of living but what prices. you're suggesting,
0: a windfall tax, you're saying, based on... Um, you know, factors outside of your control, you've basically come into a load of money, so therefore we want some of that money, but then what about, how do you reverse that? Because actually, if factors outside of your control mean that you've lost a lot of money, mm-hmm. well, what do you do with your theory then? Do you get well, involved even more and, and compensate for that?
2: Bernard, Bernard Looney, I think is the name of the, the chief executive. It is. Let's hope it's it Looney by name, not by nature. But uh, let's let's hope that let's he he says, and I agree with him that actually we're going. But, hey, never mind, Bernard gonna, Looney. I'm asking
3: you. I'm there's going
2: to be a long. There's going to be long-term volatility in the energy but market, and question. there's going to be many, many, many years of high wholesale prices. for Oil and gas. If
0: you're in favour of taxing, um, you know, external uh, rises, are you in favour then of further subsidies when there's external losses, so things that they're not responsible for?
2: Well. We have, yes been subsidizing, no, we have been subsidising BP for a long time, you for should, five be, you years. You should be a politician,
0: you. <laughs> no say what
1: you Well, you know, I think, it's, I think it's pretty simplistic to go in and say, you know, where there are rich, big companies that we can cream some money off versus, you know, uh, we're poor. You know, obviously there are, is a lot of, um, you know, difficulty of the cost of living. It's not let's get a short amount, a short-term amount of money and then plug it back in to society. What there really needs to be is a conversation about how we develop as a country. And Rishi knows this. Rishi knows that there needs to be more investment in terms of the machinery we use, the technology. You know, we want to get to net zero by 2050. That's what the government wants to do. To do that, they need to reinvest their profits into something that creates a longer-term um, uh, sort of solution to how we produce energy, but also a longer-term way to produce energy that is cost uh, that is of a good cost for ordinary people long-term, a consistent cost. On this
2: specific windfall tax, though, the chief executive has said that if there was a windfall tax to be levied, then it wouldn't affect the $18 billion of investments over the next 10 years of their plan. He wouldn't cancel any of
1: it. That's what he's already promised. What I would suspect one to do is request more investment, not just that. Remember, Rishi, uh, um, I I think it was a year or two years ago, gave tax breaks um, to companies to invest in new machinery and technology. So it's not just that. There's more that we can do, and that is what this is about. I think what Looney
3: and Rishi have in common is that they're in the financial services business. And it's very, very boring and it doesn't actually address the real needs of mm. pensioners who are cold, who are wrapping themselves in so coats and things like that. One of the they are only, all they want to do is mm. talk about contracts for difference. And if you can understand that, Lucy, you're yeah. a better mathematician than <laughs> well, I am.
1: I'm, well, I'm terrible at math. Well, there we are. Um, you know. But um, w- one of the things that the government is saying, uh, well, Boris um, and, and the team, I would suppose, is that this is basically going to affect pensioners. A lot of uh, BP's shares goes to the stakeholders, which are pensioners, who take money from the profits of BP. And therefore, if you start taxing BP, does that not trickle down to ordinary pensioners
2: who have to pay A
3: very lease? small layer of the British Did, pensioner population receives dividends. Lucy, you know that. Did, uh, the the, uh, no, no, the no,
2: idea on, that people on, struggling
3: they, at home to keep the heating on are
2: just dependent on their dividend from BP shares <laughs> is crazy. No,
1: you, so, that's you, not so that's so simplifying what huge that's
0: amazing. Amazing of uh, pension funds are invested in companies 6% like 6% of UK BP. shares, apparently. But, huge, but, but this is one of the things that people don't understand. They'll sit there and say, I'm not talking about you two, I'm talking about people en masse, they'll say, tax these big companies, tax these big companies, batter the companies. They might even go as far as, say, get these companies and, re- and nationalise them. And I always think, but people, I'm not sure they realise that a lot of funds are invested in these organisations. They need these organisations to prosper and to do well for their pensions to actually have a decent value associated to them. Um, Billy has got in touch uh, and asked, I think it's Billy anyway, uh, asking, what about all of this? We're talking about windfall profits. No, it's Chris, sorry. What happened to the $4 billion of fairlow fraud? Why can't we focus on that <laughs> rather than windfall tax? Good point. Uh, yeah. By the way, Kwasi Kwarteng has asked um, Ofgem to look into uh, energy companies hiking their direct debits more than they should do. It'll be interesting to see the outcome of that little investigation, won't it? Uh, by the way, I asked you, Earlier on, will you be voting tomorrow? 54.7% of you on Twitter said, yes, you will. 453 of you said, no, you will not. I do wonder that 50-odd percent, uh, how many of you will actually be voting properly and how many of you will be spoiling your ballot papers? I'd be fascinated to know that. Properly is anyway, a Conservative Anyway, that uh, is all we've got time for. A little plug there uh, from Lucy at the end. Gotta love a tryer. Uh, that's Lucy, Johnny and James. Thank you for your company. Thank you uh, at home for your company. Have yourself a fantastic evening and I will see you tomorrow.